Hello and welcome to Hanks for the Memories. You've got a friend in us. This is episode 46, Cloud Atlas from 2012. I'm Mike Manzi. And I'm Joey Lewandowski. And Mike, we are going solo bolo style tonight on purpose to make sure that we both can say everything we want to say about Cloud Atlas. But we both have teased, I think, maybe last episode as we were trying to get through extremely loud and incredibly close, what might be not only our favorite Tom Hanks movie, but maybe our favorite movie overall. I don't know. I mean, this is certainly one of my favorite movies of all time. I think it's been reconfirmed officially for now, having just rewatched it for Hanks. But I think it's an incredible achievement in filmmaking and storytelling. Uh, I'm aware that there's a quote-unquote unfilmable book somewhere out there, but if you ask me, they did a pretty good job from what I could tell. Well, I've read that unfilmable book, and I will get into that after the plot summary, but we talked a little bit about the plot summary because this is a wildly complex, not only, like I've talked about on these episodes before, about how, like, these long, long, long movies and how, you know, things sometimes are needlessly long and how in-depth and complex things are, but this is to another level in terms of just about all of that. So if you could please, I don't know what you settled on, I don't know what you wound up with, but if you could please try to give us a summary, give the listeners a summary of what this movie is about if they have not seen it which Godspeed to you. I know. I Listening back to some of my plot summaries, you can hear true panic in my voice at times if you know what to listen for, because I don't really write these down and do them on the spot. But discussing this a little before the show, I think you came up with a pretty elegant solution, and I think I'm just going to read what you texted me, if that's all right with you. Go for it. And I also do want to say that if you have not seen this movie yet, Mike and I both wholeheartedly endorse it. If you want to watch this movie before and like not have anything spoiled, it is three hours long, but it is on Netflix now. So if you want to go to Netflix, watch this movie, go do that first before you have anything spoiled. But if you have already seen the movie or if you don't care or whatever, please continue. All right, Mike, hit us with... I guess what I wrote. Okay. Cloud Atlas tells six different stories spanning six different distinct eras and hundreds of years to show that everything and everyone is connected. And I think in a nutshell, that's a really good sort of like elevator pitch, if you will, or like that's just a really good pull line to use to describe this movie uh, just to in general to get into it. I think if I were to go into all of the plot details, we'd be here for most of the episode. So we can discuss all that stuff at great detail as we wish going forward from here. The thing to keep in mind is that Tom Hanks, like many of the actors in this movie, play multiple parts. He plays six parts. There are six stories. He's a part in each of them. He's not the star of all of them. He's a very small part in at least two, really. He has a very big role in one of them, I'd say. He's central. So the book is written by this guy, David Mitchell. And I knew that I was going to love the movie before I saw the movie, just because of everything, like the ambition of it all. This is an independently funded movie. This is one of the most expensive independently funded movies at the time. I think it was like $100 million. The $20 million came from the German government. The Wachowskis put in $7 million of their own money. They like didn't get paid for this. Like They were basically scraping together pennies in the form of millions of dollars to get this made. And having seen and loved, you know, The Matrix as much as I did, and hearing about the making of, I was like, oh, I'm going to love this movie. And so I bought the book and I was reading the book and I remember... I don't, it's one of two, and I don't remember because we had back-to-back years in New Jersey. We had, like, week-long snowstorms or week-long stretches where my parents' house lost power. It was either Hurricane Sandy, but I don't. I think that was the wrong year, maybe? But I think we had, like, a freak snowstorm in October or something. Sounds familiar. Because my parents live out in the middle of nowhere, and, like, power was out for a week. And so I was still living at home because I was 
24 or whatever and I was just reading the book and I was like I want to go I want to read this book I want to finish the book first before I go see the movie in theaters and then I'm looking on my phone or on the computer I go to the library to go on the computer because no power no internet at home and I'm like oh no this Thursday night is the last time I can see it in theaters I have to drive like 45 minutes to find the only theater anywhere near me that's showing this movie and I still have like 250 pages of this book and I was like well and so I just spent the entire day reading the book and I finished the book and I drove to the movie theater and I watched the movie and I was just blown away because you said it earlier in unfilmable book. So you have not read the book. You don't know the, you know the structure of the book? No, I don't know the structure of the book. This movie feels very much structured like a novel, if you take my meaning. Like, I feel like I'm watching chapters and, you know, there's tons of flashbacks and the structure of the movie seems like I'm reading something while I'm watching it, if that makes sense to you. But no, I'm not aware if it's if it goes even beyond this in print form. What's amazing, what's truly amazing to me about the movie is that the structure of the movie is nothing at all like the book. No, you're kidding. (laughs) And so I'm reading the book, knowing it's going to become a movie. Like, that's why I was reading the book. It's not like I was just like, oh, I want to read this book. And then, oh, it's happened to become, like, I was reading it explicitly for this purpose. So I'm, as I'm reading, I'm like, I wonder how they're going to adapt it. Like the same thing with the upcoming movie on Netflix that's coming out, I think, in September. I'm thinking of Ending Things, which is written by uh, this guy, Ian Reid, and it's going to be adapted into this movie that written and directed by Charlie Kaufman. And so as I'm reading that book, I'm like, I have no idea how the hell, like, there's like stuff that happened in that book. I'm like, I don't know how you make this a movie so i'm reading cloud atlas and i'm like okay i i don't i don't get it i just don't get it because the book is split up into 12 parts so it tells half the story it goes chronologically it tells half the story of each era so it starts off in like the 1860s or whenever that is and then it goes to the like 1920s or whenever that is then the 1970s and then kind of modern day and then near future and then far future so it does each chunk in like 50 page like not chapters but like sections right so it's like one two three four five six then in the back half it closes each story in reverse order so it goes six five four three two one so basically the middle say 100 pages or whatever 50 pages 75 pages that is the far future that's basically in the movie that's the tom hanks story 10 years after the fall yes and so that's like the middle and then as you come back it's closing up each story and there's connections that are being made between characters and in the movie it's just beautifully like the opening montage the opening like 10 minutes of this movie which is basically kind of teasing what happens later which is again for as much as you and i have railed about this on every podcast it's like oh no this is how you do it you don't know who these people are where they're going but you're setting things up and it's amazing but then the score of this movie i'm so sorry that i'm all over the place and i'm not letting you talk but i just need to get so many things that's okay we'll get to everything i'm sure yeah i bought the vinyl last night it's out of print i went on discogs and i bought the vinyl it's going to be here this week sometime like i was like i need to have this because the score is so beautiful i've listened to the on spotify i bought the mp3 like i listened to it so many times the way that the music like ebbs and flows and like cutting back and forth between like all six stories and there's like voiceover that is from different characters in different eras and it's all like set i'm like i'm sitting there in theaters like probably i think alone probably alone alone because nobody like it's 10 o'clock on a Thursday night this movie that is about to leave theaters that was not a successful movie right no yeah critical success commercial failure from what I understand yep so nobody's there and I'm just sitting like mouth agape like I can't believe like even like five minutes in the movie I'm like oh they got they, they nailed it like I don't know how they did it and the actual physical like how they filmed it and we'll talk about that later is amazing to me too but I was like oh they did it like the editing of this is so 
brilliantly done to weave together six wildly different stories that all, in the end, it's all just one story. That's all kind of telling the story of, like, the main character with the shooting star birthmark on their body somewhere, right? And just going from one to the other, I'm just like, oh, they nailed it. Like, I had another two hours and 45 minutes. I was like, nope, I'm done already. Like, I love it. I'm sold. I'm done. <laughs> I would love to go back and read this book now because the structure of this film, like, pulls so much, like, it's so literal but it's also so much devoted to like to music as well like i almost feel like i'm watching a symphony in the way that it's structured i did not get to see this in theaters Uh, i think this is one of the most overlooked and underrated movies maybe of all time i think the it's it's got a third director as well it's not just the wachowski it's tom tickfer yeah yeah so i think a lot about this scared a lot of people off i think a lot of people were a little sour over the last couple matrix movies uh but i was anticipating this movie for so long that at one point I forgot it was even being made because I don't know if you were aware of this but so early on there was like rumors of this secret Wachowski film being made and like parts being filmed in secret and I remember Jesse Ventura and Ariana Huffington had like photos leaked of them on the <laughs> set and it was for this movie and I think they're actually in the movie in one of like the video sequences on the news or something like that but like I remember just like crazy rumors and wild shit being talked about in this movie and like it was attached to some book and not unfilmable in the way like Watchmen proved to be filmable like you know from like a uh, visual thing but like just the the type of story that this was and the way that it told its story and everything and it does sound like it's told like a very conventional novel either but like yeah I I pretty much love everything about this movie I mean movies like this just don't get made this is like a miracle film just in the regard of like six people playing six different roles or whatever like that helps so much for me to prove the movie's point about the interconnectedness and all of that kind of thing like I love the themes of this movie even if I can't fully articulate what they're trying to say all the time Uh, it's just sort of like this overall general sense of awe and wonder and I think that is part of the point too where it's just like there's an uncomprehensibleness to our interconnectedness that we shouldn't even really delve too far into and just accept on some certain sort of level Uh, I'm glad you love this movie too because like I think you're the only one out there that I know (laughs) that sort of you know champions this film beside me I've made it not a secret at all that I also absolutely love Jupiter Ascending and like I'm alone on that island like I don't think that there's anybody like I, I get I get it I understand but like what the Wachowskis do and again the same thing with Sense8 their TV show on Netflix that they did I think also with Tom Tickford that between Jupiter Ascending and I guess now The Matrix 4 what they worked on was the two seasons in the movie and I think one of the Wachowskis left and the other finished the series and I don't remember exactly what I think they just had like creative differences or whatever but like they are always and I don't know how and I don't know why but it so works for me every time they are so weirdly deeply ambitious and telling me stories about connection and love and empathy and understanding and like they're all framed within this like majestic sci-fi world that is I don't understand how any of it works and it does and it's just amazing to me I mean I think like in general the public sort of takes for granted their perspective right like they are very not very early but I'd say for like our generation and a little earlier like they are sort of out there as queer cinema filmmakers right yeah and yeah you look at all their work from bound to this and that is a point of view that is sort of you know 
fresh for me, something that I'm not coming from, something that is always going to teach me something new, something that I'm interested in understanding. So like, I think they're in a very unique position and I'm very grateful that they're putting themselves out there like that because that's got to be incredibly difficult for anybody to do, let alone like what they stand for. So I think that's a whole part. I think that turns a lot of people off as well. I don't think it, it really hits them. That's why it turns them off. But maybe there's just something like, oh, I don't share this perspective and I don't want to know it. But for me, like I'm that's I talk about it often. Like that's why I love movies, because I could get a window into the world of of people that are very different than who I am, you know, and I can connect on them on stuff like their love of cyberpunk and my love of that. And I think that's the thing they nail the best. That's my favorite stuff of theirs that they've put out in their career. But yeah, they're certainly coming from their own sort of perspective. And uh, that's something to really value, I think. What I really loved being able to do is before I moved back from Austin, they showed at the draft house over like the last couple of months I was down there. I think over the span of a month, they showed all the Wachowski movies in theaters. And I didn't see Bound because I think I just missed it, but I saw the Matrix trilogy in a single day. Like they had like a buy one ticket, get all three movies. And like the way that they framed, like that's the beautiful thing about the draft house. Not only do they show these old movies, these archival movies, these things that like either beloved or cult classics or whatever, but like the way that they frame it and introduce it, it's being told and it's being framed and it's being packaged by people who love the movies and just love movies in general. And the guy gets down there, he's like, look, he's like, some of you might not have seen the sequels, I don't know. He's like, but I'm pretty sure you don't buy a ticket to this trilogy if you haven't seen the original Matrix movie. And we all kind of laughed or whatever. He's like, but I want you to think back to like 1999, like put yourself in the theater, put yourself in the shoes of somebody going to the theater for the first time and you're following this ad campaign and there's nothing you know about the movie. I'm getting chills thinking about this, like the way that he inspired me that day. He's like, Think about like how like all you knew is like what is the Matrix? They don't know you don't know what this is. And like I know that you're gonna know what the movie is and you know there's Neo and there's Agent Smith and whatever, but like the opening of this movie where you have Trinity like getting arrested and then all of a sudden able to like jump and freeze time and like do like these insane martial arts, it's like what I don't even know like I don't I can't comprehend what I'm looking at. Just him saying just pretend if you can, that it's 17 years ago, that it's 1999, and that you're in the theater and you don't know what this is. Because obviously you're in the theater now, today, because you love these movies, but pretend like you don't. Pretend like you don't know what they are. And I was like, oh my god. And like it, just, it worked for me in a way that I was just like, oh my god. But then, going to see Speed Racer in a crowd filled with people who love Speed Racer, and I've never seen it before, I was like, this is amazing. And then seeing Cloud Atlas, and then seeing Jupiter Ascending, and like I was already, like I didn't love it the first time, because I think in part, because I had so many asshole friends who were like, oh, look, it's getting terrible reviews. And I was like, God damn, like, stop it. Just I, let me let me try to enjoy it. And I couldn't, and I was like grumpy or whatever. But then they have these two women on stage introducing it, and they're just talking. They're so passionate about it. I was like, oh no, I get it now. And I love that movie. I've loved it ever since. But being able to see all of these, not only in the span of a month on the big screen, but seeing them introduced by people who love them as much as I do, it like added to the experience of all of it. And I feel like these are the kind of movies that like they could be in theory, like, The Matrix is, like, one of the biggest movies that's ever been made in terms of just, like, importance, in terms of, you know, influence, in terms of all that stuff. I get that Cloud Atlas is not going to be like that, but for the people like you and me who connect with it, it's like, oh, no, this could be the greatest thing that's ever been made. I agree with that. Like, it's weird, because I remember I was there, I think I talked about this on our Matrix episode, but I was in theaters to see The Matrix there, and I waited forever. It was, like, one of the last weeks, and I was like, I don't know, like, I didn't really have any interest, and then within five minutes, it was like the most amazing thing ever like I never I you know my brain was like you don't even know like you 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 know so nothing like you're so you know nothing Jon Snow like you thought 
you knew what movies could be and like you just got schooled in like five minutes for the rest of your life and so like that for me feels like a turning point this should have been in a lot of ways I feel like for me this is another like the Wachowskis work are like turning points in storytelling for me and just because no one's ever done something like this again doesn't mean that it didn't work or it doesn't work or it can't work again I mean, to be fair, they did do it again. Somebody did do it again. It was just them in Sense8. Like, Sense8 is basically this, but extended to us. Like, nobody else has tried, because I don't think that anybody else can. But, like, there are other people doing it. It just happens to, like, oh, wait, they're the same people. Like, okay. It's very strange that, like, they're in a certain class of their own where it's, like, they put things out that keep making me go, I didn't know you could do this with a movie. And it's not in a way where you watch, like, a Tarantino movie and you're like, I didn't know you could, like, take a shot from one movie and dialogue from another movie and make it your own movie. I didn't know you could do that. It's not like that. It's like, I didn't know you could, like shoot a movie this way I didn't know you could tell a story this way I didn't know you could like have only a limited number of actors play every role like I don't think I'd seen a movie aside from 2001 that had spanned more time than this movie tries to do yeah things like of that nature you know like really trying to push the boundaries of movies and cinema and all that kind of stuff and we really don't go up on this hill that often so you know saying it might sound a little strange and all but like this is the stuff that I really thrive on like I'm a huge science fiction fan I love innovative media and everything and like this movie just tries it just asks you to see things differently including movies and to give things more of a try I feel so I don't know where else to go from here if you want to talk about the actual movie for a while that'd be cool but (laughs) well before you do that like I'm glad you said the word boundaries because my favorite moment in this movie is the it's one of the mini monologues of letters that Frobisher is writing the Sixsmith, and he says all boundaries are conventions waiting to be transcended. It's just like, oh, like people are artificially placing limitations on film. And I think that the Wachowskis are able to transcend that because they're not afraid to fail. I think that there are so many people, and I think the only other person maybe is... Any approaching their level is like Luke Besson, because like he's like, I'm gonna get a hundred million dollars, I'm gonna make Valerian in the city of a thousand planets. That's stupid. Like, what are you doing? But like I love that too. It's just like I don't understand how you're able to find the hundred I mean, I get I get how you are because you've made these movies that people are like, I'm willing to think like I've said before, if I won the lottery, the first like one of the first calls I would make I was I would call Shane Carruth and be like, Okay, modern ocean, what do you need? Let's get it done. Because like I just trust in his vision. I wanna see him make the things he wants to make right or a topiary or whatever shinkruth call me i don't have the money but let's talk i feel like with luke basson and the wachowskis they're like we're just gonna make the movie that we want to make and we're not going to like hollywood's gonna say no like warner brothers who put out the matrix is like "Mm, probably not like we're not we're not gonna touch this one but they can still do it because they have the clout and they have the vision and they have whatever that like a tom hanks or a Halle Berry, or a Hugo Weaving, is just like, oh, I, or a Hugh Grant, or who, like, Susan Sarandon, like, whoever you want to say from this movie, oh, yeah, no, I will play six different parts. I will play three different parts in the span of one week while we're shooting. I will dress in, like, again, this also might not work for people, but, like, in white face, like, in yellow face, I don't know if that's politically correct to say, as a man, as a woman, like, all of this stuff that, like, wildly should not work, and it does, because I think they're not afraid, and I feel like that quote, all boundaries or conventions waiting to be transcended it's like yeah movies can be whatever you want them to be like don't feel like you have to hit whatever 
Like, you can make a movie from the perspective of a killer tire and call it rubber, and, like, that's a movie that people can see, which is amazing. Like, just do weird shit because you can. I'm so glad that they didn't just retire after The Matrix because this is what that blank check essentially got them. Like, they have a free pass for the rest of their lives in Hollywood if they want it, pretty much, right? Like, they're even coming back to do, or at least one of them's coming back to do more Matrix, but I'm sure they've got a lot of other shit that they want to tell after that or, or not. But I I think it jarred some people to watch this and be like, this isn't just leather-clad gun battles left and right. This is some, like, hardcore sentimental sensibility shit at times. And I think that that might have blindsided a lot of people, but there's a very strong history of that in American films, like, specifically, too, that I feel they're drawing on, which is inherent in sort of the nature of the story they're telling, which is, you know, the past in the present, in the future, all of the connectedness, all of it happening at the same time sort of sensation. So, like, they're even doing that at times with their styles of filmmaking within the movie itself, I feel, at times. Things in this are very deep, but some of it comes across very heavy-handed, and almost in a shallow sense, just so that you could understand it quickly because so many things are being try are they're trying to convey so many things at once i remember the first time i sat down to watch it in awe and i was like this must be how dr manhattan walks through life like he just sees <laughs> everything at once and absorbs it all like he's watching cloud atlas every day except only within his own the parameters of his own life right he only can move through time of his own life but like this is probably how he's clipping through the time stream and things like that so i you know, it forced me to sort of draw upon other literature myself to give myself an understanding of like what I'm even interpreting, you know, like how how can I connect with what I'm even watching in the sense that I understand and I can follow it. Uh, so like just very challenging movie too. So like I think that is a certain uh, aspect of it that might have also, uh, I think is a benefit, but might have been sort of a deterrent. Because if you look at something like Jupiter Ascending, and I'm, I'm not going to trash it because I actually like that movie. It's like a uh, um, for me, it's a it's like the Wachowski schlocky fun summer like you know here's everything we've done in one big basket. It might not all work, but damn if like we didn't try and it doesn't look cool as hell at least. And you know what I'm saying? Like it's this hodgepodge of it feels like like a bouillabaisse bay leftover idea kind of thing. And like it still goes down pretty well, and you're satisfied after watching it. So like it's just interesting to see how they can work on all these different levels. And I think this is my favorite though because it's not just a hundred percent sort of like gun battle assault fighting thing, but we we get some of that. But it it paces itself in a in a very interesting way, and I, I just like how it kind of has like this weird trust in itself to tell the story the way it wants to. I do want to point out, you know, in in spite of all of the praise that I am and we are lavishing on it, you bringing up Dr. Manhattan, like, I'm glad that not all movies are like this, because if this was just the average movie, I would be, either one or two things would happen, I would either be exhausted, or like, we would have something even beyond that, right? But like, I think the Dr. Manhattan comparison is apt, because it's like, oh yeah, it's just a different way to tell a story. And when you're watching the movie, I feel like you're like, it's just, it's almost like, how are, how is everything fitting together so seamlessly? Like, how are six stories all hitting the same emotional beats at the same time it's like oh because we have three master storytellers telling a story it's like it's not really a surprise like it's and it's based on a great book right like it's not like it's hard to understand it's like oh no they're 
able to tell the same story over six times because like that's the point of it but like at times it like it feels like a magic trick it's like how is this all working as well as it is yeah, I would agree. It definitely feels... I mean, I think we talk about that with Nolan a lot, where movies are magic and they're... Tri- you know, it's sleight of hand and all that kind of stuff. And I definitely get that from this movie. I think it's basically there to screw up, right? Like, I'm not saying it's going to be easy because I'm sure the source material is complex, you know? I've heard of other novels like Confederacy of Dunces. People say that's unfilmable. I mean, people have said that about, you know, lots of things. And they either don't get made or they come out like Watchmen and people are like, oh no, that was great. Like, that's cool. Like, they just, you know, maybe they changed something in the end, but the rest of it is all there and it's it works for the most part. That is always sort of like a stigma to, I guess, like live up to. I'm also just like constantly floored that I'm sure that more than half of the movies ever made are adaptations of a novel or, or something or other. Oh, probably, yeah. Um, but but it just seems like if you're going to take this on, you know what you're doing. You have a clear vision. I'm sure they didn't wing it in a Peter Jackson sort of Hobbit, second Hobbit trilogy kind of way you read about where he's like on set and he's like, okay, so today we'll do this, I guess, and maybe we'll do that. It's like, no, I'm sure they went to war to make this movie because it, it just feels so calculated and right. so well put together and, and like a jigsaw puzzle that they had to know what they were doing. So here's some behind-the-scenes background stuff in terms of that kind of planning. So this was apparently first brought to the Wachowskis' attention when Natalie Portman gave a copy of the novel to Lana Wachowski on the set of V for Vendetta. So they knew about it all the way back in 2005. A year later, they wrote a screenplay. They brought in Tom Tickfer. He helped write the second version of the screenplay. Natalie Portman was promised the role of Sanmi 451, but then she got pregnant and had to turn it down. But that's why she has... I didn't see it, but you might have seen that she has a special thanks in the credits because essentially she brought this to them i mean they might have seen it at some other point but like she's like hey i think you would like this the wachowskis directed the earliest like the boat sequence and the two future sequences and tom tickford did the three kind of more modern the 1930s 1970s and 2012 ones it's one of the very few films in history of film apparently that had three different directors that like it two is rare enough but three is crazy to, to work on it at the same time and to all be sort of credited together i think because like if you go back and i always love to throw this out the wizard of oz had five directors one credited and if you go on imdb i think they only list four and you have to sort of search for that fifth one but you know directors kind of come and go the sort of release the Snyder Cut, yo. Yeah. You know, I, it's cool. It's I think it's that's the rarity is like they all three of them collectively like came together and put this movie out. So the Wachowskis and Tom Tickford were saying that instead of thinking of your characters as characters, think of them as a genetic strain because they all, all of their actions of one impact the actions and the lives of the others. So it's all kind of like interconnected there. And in terms of the directing, in terms of the actual filmmaking, like I was saying earlier, is that because of they had like, you know, they didn't have the endless budget they had a I mean it cost 100 million dollars they had a lot of money but like times were tight and they had all this crazy logistics Halle Berry said that she described filming as a Jewish woman in the 30s under Tom Tickfer then switched to an old tribal woman under Lily Wachowski and Lana Wachowski then again as the environmentalist in the 1970s all within the span of a week which is just like memorizing a part it's not a skill set that I have which I'm just I'm impressed that anybody's able to do that in a movie and, like, be believable baseline, number one. But then to have a three-hour script, but then to have, like, 
all of those things be so wildly... Like, it's not just one character over the span of, like, 180 pages in the screenplay. It's, like, you're playing six characters, like, several of them, like, very meaty roles, and they're all, like, similar-ish, but also still wildly different. And, like, it just feels insane that any of this worked at all. It's crazy how they each sort of have one major role in a time period and then play supporting roles in most of the other ones and things like that, but it's not even like they're playing the same character in a different era. It's like they're entirely different people and that is the craziest you know what i'm saying it's not like hanks is doing the same thing in the 1700s that he's doing 10 years after the fall of mankind right they couldn't be further apart from each other and stuff so like that is the crazy thing to me watching this go down and i didn't even realize uh you know it took me a couple times to watch this to tell who was who under a lot of that make okay they even show you at the end like they show tom hanks they show like six different characters it's like oh okay cool i get that some of them just like i think now like i finally this time around i picked up like hugh grant like who he was in all these i guess he's maybe one of the more obvious ones but like in passing like i can't tell who these people are because like i was saying men play women women play men people there's no blackface which i guess is good but like yeah like Halle Berry plays a couple white characters uh Asian people play white people white people play some Asian people like there's stuff that like if you want to point out as problematic you probably could but it's also like it's done with love like it's not done in a mocking or a condescending way it's like look we're all the same which I feel like is okay I feel like I mean again that's not maybe my battle to fight but I feel like the reason that they're doing this is for uh, it has a good backing has good purpose yeah and I think that's why there is no blackface in this movie because they knew exactly what they were doing otherwise they would have stepped over a certain line and there's been so much of that throughout the history of American films that I you know let Halle Berry play a white woman there's nothing you know that's totally fine like she's earned the right if you know what I'm saying like that kind of stuff you know men playing women that's historically like it goes back to Shakespeare I mean there feels like they're drawing not just they're drawing from every aspect of like creative history right like these are all very theatrical sort of theater things that went on before movies even happened where people would have to play people of other colors because those people were not allowed to be on stage in the first place and same with gender and all kinds of stuff and things like that so i almost feel like they're invoking that when they're doing it in this movie you know and that's why it feels kind of like i don't want to say pitch perfect but like it 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 feels like it belongs it works yeah yeah so let's talk about each of the six segments not you know incredibly in depth but focusing on the tom hanks in each so the first one i guess we'll go chronologically tom's hanks tom's hanks yes that's what I, i did write Tom's These are the most Toms since we rolled the Polar Express. It's amazing. I also do want to, because we have more distinction here, when we play the games at the end, could Tom Cruise play this and is he America's dad? I do want to make sure that we do each character, because I think we can think we can go through it pretty quickly, but we'll just think about that as we go through. But the first one is the one on the ship. I think this is, is, is the lead actor in this one, Ben Wishaw? Is that his name? And so he plays Adam Ewing, who writes a diary that is read by later characters but he's on a boat and a, a slave escapes and hides on the boat and as they're traveling wherever they tra- wind up traveling uh, tom hanks is a scammer schemer prospector whatever who is slowly poisoning adam ewing to essentially rob him of all of his earthly belongings 
and only at the very end does the the you know the freed self freed slave save Adam Ewing's life by basically being like, no, I'm not gonna let you. Like he doesn't. I don't think he knows exactly what's happening, but he knows enough to be like something weird is going on with this Tom Hanks character. The one thing I want to point out before we talk about this is that like certain actors play the same kind of role. Hugo Weaving always plays evil. Like in all six of these stories, he's always like the villain, and Hugh Grant is always like a villain. Tom Hanks is not always that. Tom Hanks is kind of like neutral. Like sometimes he's good, sometimes he's bad. Here, obviously bad. But like he's got that like oh no like I'm just a doctor like I'm Henry Goose like what are you what are you talking about I'm I'm a doctor <laughs> and so like I think the the self freed slave doesn't know that this guy is poisoning him but knows that this guy is up to no good and so he's going to watch out for this guy who helped stow him away and helped you know earn him his freedom essentially what I really like most about Hanks in this segment is like all the makeup and mm-hmm. the teeth and the hair and you're right we get a lot of bad Hanks in the sense of like you know he's he plays very bad characters. As far as people like they are, some of the characters he you know plays a murderer in this, you know, uh, and I think it's very interesting in the end when we get his main character in the far flung future that he's sort of dealing with the history of this through his DNA, I guess. Yeah. Where it's like, you know, he has a moment to decide if he's going to be a bad guy he was his entire existence or finally be a, a good soul or whatever. But yeah, I love that he's uh, Dr. Goose or whatever. He, he's like this uh, swindling con man way back in the 1700s and he's collecting teeth on a beach because they're going to ground them up and like sell them as a, uh, like a cure to whatever you need and like, we never see this stuff. Like, I love that it's Hanks. Like, I love that he is behind all this makeup and he's playing against type for most of the movie. It's a lot of fun. I also do want to point out that this is one of the movies, like, he, his, his comparing him to Tom Cruise, Tom Cruise is always movie star Tom Cruise, right? Like, he's always, like, action star Tom Cruise, always handsome like when he goes outside the box it's like oh he's doing something different right whereas like most of his career he's locked into oh he's doing this for a reason because he's the best in the world at what he does right tom hanks is all over the place playing different kinds of roles playing different types of characters sometimes gains a lot of weight sometimes is really emaciated like in castaway castaway here he's kind of ripped in several of these segments i think i feel like he is he's (laughs) in like movie star kind of shape and here it doesn't matter we're gonna get to the segments where it matters later or matters more later but like I was like, I want to commend Tom Hanks for like, apparently this is one of the, his very few films that he like likes rewatching, which good taste. Thank you. But like, <laughs> I feels like he really committed to this. And I feel like his commitment to the different types of characters, like you were saying, and just the portrayal of all this, like it shows, like it works because it works. Yeah. And this just seems like a movie you got to be in shape to make on a day to day basis yeah. kind of thing. And then he, then he went just like a step beyond for his character. Cause yeah, there's, two or three characters he plays where he needs to be fit in shape and in fighting form and things like that. So it's great how he transforms himself in this movie. So, okay, actually, instead of doing it at the end, let's do it now. So I don't know, I guess overall, do you think Tom Cruise, before we talk about the other five characters, could Tom Cruise play the Tom Hanks roles, plural, in this movie overall? Yes or no? Well, I think he could play this one. It's got a bit of a Les Grossman look to it. And I was thinking about it as I was watching it. And I think I'm going to throw this name out there and I hope it doesn't distract us for the rest of the episode. But I saw a lot of Nick Cage and a lot of what Tom Hanks was doing throughout this entire movie. I can see that. In, in all of the different iterations that he was playing. So I think Cruz could play this role. I could see him because he because he's got the upper hand. You know what I'm saying? And he's great in those types yeah. of roles where he's, he's playing a guy who has like sort of dominance over someone else. The position of power, essentially. 
Yeah. So now the other important, the other question about this character is he America's dad? And I think in this case, absolutely not. Like this is maybe his most evil character of all six, right? This is his. I'm going to poison this man to rob him. I know this is. You could almost say this is this guy's worse than the author that we're gonna get to. <laughs> that he plays. Well, the author, the author is just like a, you know he's just like an angry drunk essentially. This guy has like actual. And that was a publicity stunt, yeah. <laughs> so then the next segment is in 1936. This is Robert Frobisher. He is writing the Cloud Atlas Sextet, which is the beautiful score. In this one, Tom Hanks probably has his, I would say, actually not his smallest role, maybe his next to smallest role, where he just plays the hotel manager at the hotel where Frobisher eventually kills himself. And he's, again, like he's a little bit better, or maybe just not as evil, but he doesn't have a lot to go on. He just is like just essentially extorts Frobisher for like money even though Frobisher knows he's about to go upstairs and kill himself it doesn't really matter but like you know getting the vest off him and getting the money but again not a great guy but not a terrible guy but also not a good guy yeah and and not central to the overall overarching plot it's more about Six Smith and the Jim Broadbent character who's fucking amazing in this movie yes. Jim Broadbent like what a legend that guy and I quite like all this stuff because this is where we get the actual Cloud Atlas symphonies origin and the music's amazing and that's a very interesting relationship going on there so it's unfortunate we didn't get more Hanks and more time at the actual hotel where the deed takes place and goes down um, but he does look pretty fancy in that nice vest that he winds up in at the end <laughs> I actually do want to correct myself from before. So Adam Ewing is played by Jim Sturgis and Ben Wishaw is the character who plays, or the guy who plays Robert Frobisher. Like it's hard for me, again, with hair blindness that I'm able to pick up anybody is miraculous, I think. Oh yeah, especially in this movie when they're making up like future races to disguise people's looks and things like that. It's insane. But then to have like basically British actors who are all very good, who I just kind of don't know, then playing six different people, it's just like, oh, I don't know. So the next one is a pretty sizable Tom Hanks role. It's in San Francisco in 1973. He plays Isaac Sachs in San Francisco. And you want to talk about what this is? This is kind of the Halle Berry segment. Oh, yeah, this was really interesting. This is sort of like the 70s. This reminded me of almost like Zodiac at times, the way it looked in yeah. the shop. But this is sort of like the 70s investigative reporter neo-noir crime thriller mm-hmm. part with Halle Berry. And she runs into the aged Sixsmith himself. I forgot that characters literally crossed over into other parts of the story. I thought it was just sort of relics and trinkets and things and the music, but that was cool. It's on the brink of some kind of energy breakthrough and... She uncovers uh, this big plot to stunt the advancement of energy in America, and she there's this whole thing where she gets run off the road, and she tries they try to kill her, but she gets away, and that's a really exciting segment. And Hanks plays a scientist at the energy lab. I'm not quite sure, you know, it's they don't go into great detail on certain details, like names of corporations and stuff all the time that I can remember, but I didn't remark that we have blonde Hanks in this role. And I thought that was pretty interesting. Also, he has maybe my favorite my favorite quote of his in the entire movie. He just says, when she takes up the little like uh, thing of what looks like cigarettes, he's like, she's like, do you mind? He says, I'm cool. Because she's about to smoke weed, but he's like, I'm cool. It's like, blonde Hanks, I'm cool. Yeah, he even takes a puff of the doobage. So that was uh, not America's dad. <laughs> and I feel like if you're tracing, well, I guess the, the next one's going to throw this theory into the, into the, you know, into the either. But like, if we're tracing his evil to benevolent scale this is the one where he kind of goes like from bad to like good like he again is kind of like not really doing much but he knows that things like he, he lies 
to protect Halle Berry, and he helps give her documents and whatever, and sets her up and helps her here. But then he ultimately gets killed on an airplane. So we have a Tom Hanks death in this one. Yeah, I thought that was interesting too, is like the moment that his strain of DNA, I guess we're calling it, or whatever, his his soul, like whatever it is that's been jumping time, like as soon as it decided to do the right thing, it gets snuffed out, you know? <laughs> like it's almost as if like, no, 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 like you were not designed right. to do to like do good in this world. You're here to be chaotic or something like that. So you got to go. <laughs> I don't yeah. know if that was intended or whatever, but that's just something like I started drawing from the film because I noticed that pattern harder this time where I was like trying to pay more attention to the attributes of the characters that everyone's playing. Like how different are they? The next segment is in London 2012, and this is where Tom Hanks plays Dermot Hoggins, the author, and this is the Jim Broadbent as Timothy Cavendish story. So if you want to talk about this one, this is, again, this is maybe the least Hanks that we have, just because he's like, he's in the, the inciting incident and that's it, and then he kind of goes away, but actually, no, not the next one, he also is not in a ton either, but if you want to talk about London 2012. Jim Broadbent plays his publisher, mm-hmm. Hanks is an author, he's sort of like this um, Vinnie Jones type of attitude guy, right? Like, he's he's got like that really heavy, thick British accent. He's got scars all over his face. He looks like he's a super brawler. I think his character was actually a boxer and he wrote a tell-all biography that got terrible reviews and they're at the release party and he goes up to the critic who hated his book and he throws him off the balcony and kills him. So he goes to prison and then Jim Broadman becomes like rich off of his fame but then Tom Hanks's brothers come to collect like residuals and they want 50 grand from him. Uh, so Jim Broadman then goes to try and hide out at his brother's house played by Hugh Grant and Hugh Grant's like no 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 go to this place you could hide out there and it turns out to be an old folks home and he's trapped his brother in his own old folks home yep and he has to set up this whole great escape to get free and back to the love of his life now played by Susan Sarandon I know, I know. And it turns into a movie in the future, and Tom Hanks plays Jim Broadbent's character in the movie in the future. It's amazing. It's amazing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's great. (laughs) We went too far, so... In the Cambridge one where he plays the hotel manager, is he America's dad? I'm going to say once again, no. Oh, yeah, by no means. Could Tom Cruise play that part? Sure, I guess, why not? Yeah, I don't think he'd want it. So, so, well, if he's there, I'm sure that was one of the things where they're like, you know, we could, we got Tom Hanks, let's just throw him in another role. That's the whole point of this kind of game. <laughs> yeah. Well, I think, I think that's like, it's like you're signing on to do the movie, right? You're signing on to like, to do all of this. It's like, I think that if you're signing on to do Cloud Atlas, you're, you're in it to win it, right? You're like, just give me whatever, like paint lines on my face, you know, put me in another makeup, you know, make me a woman, like whatever you need to do, I'm in it. Just, I'm a tool for you to tell your story essentially, right? In San Francisco, is he America's dad? I'm going to say here, yeah. I I mean, not maybe not the best, not world's best dad, but like a pretty good dad. Yeah, he comes to his senses, you know, and I love that his chance encounter with Halle Berry and everything. He's like, I'm in love with her and I just met her. And then he gets blown up like immediately. Like there's just something so like comical, not in like a haha way, but like in an ironic kind of way that I think worked so well for that particular moment. Whereas like, I don't know why I'm immediately invested in this relationship. And then it's like, boom, <laughs> he's gone. But it's also like so, so, so deeply sad for him to like, to imagine. So if this is how things actually worked, right? And we all have these spirits that get reincarnated and like you might go lives without seeing the people that you love that eventually, uh, spoilers for 
the movie that we were spoiling the hell out of, but like eventually he will wind up with Halle Berry, right? In, in the far future, in the true true, he will have a beautiful family with Halle Berry. But like it took hundreds of years. So imagine that like the one you're meant for, right? Like your true love story, your your true partner, whatever, however you want to describe it, you finally find her and you don't know why you're in love with her, but you know that like there's something special about this. And then to fucking die? It's like, come on, man. Like it's funny, like I give you that, but it's also like so deeply sad that he then has to wait like 400 years like maybe six more lifetimes to finally get back to the woman he loves like it just it's heartbreaking but like it's beautiful because you know in the end he gets there in the end yeah i think that moment hit me harder because i've seen this movie before right like you're watching this movie it's going along and you might be like what is the object of that like why is that it seems so random but then you're like no none of this is random right like, it's all reoccurring for a reason and it all is leading somewhere and that's one of the few moments where there's sort of like a hint at something not magical but like there's something about being human and dna and metaphysics and things like that where like people are studying things i think even like the dharma initiative was onto this where it was like past lives trapped inside memories of anybody so like even the original planet of the apes book got into this when he goes to the planet of the apes they're dissecting a human brain and they get it to tell the history of like ancient rome and it never studied that in its lifetime how could it like it grew up on the planet of the apes so like there's this some weird thing that they're tapping into in this movie where it's like all of our lifetimes are sort of captured in our DNA. Again, going back to like New Watchmen, you know, how you know, spoilers, but like how Hooded Justice's granddaughter became a superhero without even knowing that she was Hooded yep. Justice's granddaughter. Yep. Like it's just in your blood it's in your dna and i think one of the only other few moments they do that which is so heartbreaking is when jim broadband wakes up in the middle of the night and he's had a vision of the future of the crazy neo soul restaurant and he's trying to describe the melody and he can't and it's just like oh they're so few and far between and they land so well and i love those moments yeah i'm also glad that you brought up the dharma initiative because as i'm rewatching lost like in this entire movie i just had i haven't gotten to him yet in this rewatch but just thinking of desmond like see you another life brother like just like the whole thing it's like, you know, we're going to get there in the end. You know, the constant in all of the, in this, like the, the constant in Cloud Atlas is love, essentially, right? So. Yeah, the fifth element, my friend. So in London, as Dermot Higgins, I think obviously the answer is, is he America's dad? No, he murders a guy uh, out of rage. <laughs> Although I did text you, and it's a great line. He just quotes the review back to him. Now that is an ending inane and flat beyond belief, which is just, you know, such a petty thing to do, but I just love it. It's wonderful. Like, there's a couple lines like that where I feel like the movie's calling itself out, being like, we know, like, we get it, like, you know, some I know, of this stuff. I know. <laughs> because there's another part where the kid in Halle Berry's 70s timeline, like her little like short round like sidekick is like, you know, this would make a great book or yeah. something. And it's like, well, it is a great yeah. book. Mm -hmm. And like there's things like that. But I love those little moments. Yeah. The fifth story is the one in Neo Soul in 2144. This is Duna Bay's story. And Duna Bay is, I think, the only one from this who carries over to Sense 8. She's one of the Sense 8s. So she carries over. She's amazing in that, too. This is, you know, there's Papa songs. And this is what you're talking about before with Jim Broadbent as Vivian having the idea of the song that he's trying to what it, put a melody to, right? This is the one we were talking about before that Tom Hanks plays the actor playing Jim Broadbent in the previous one. But what I loved the only thing that I wrote down, because I just wanted to watch this movie, I just wanted to take it in, is this might be the greatest description of Tom Hanks because Cavendish, when he's writing his like life story or talking about us, whatever, says, or, you know, when the ghastly ordeal of Timothy Cavendish is 
turned into a film, I'm thinking for the role of the hero, one part Sir Lawrence Olivier with a dash of Michael Caine. And I was like, that's a pretty good description of Tom Hanks. Like, it's not exactly who I would say, but like, it works. That's damn close. Right? I love it. <laughs> I mean, I had forgotten a lot. This movie's three hours long, mm-hmm. you know, and I have seen it a lot and I do love it. But um, I, I forgot that Hanks played that character in this segment and that they made like a whole movie on that guy's experience. And every, like, it's just such a funny sort of comment on the things that become legend in a lot of ways, right? That's not how it went down at all. But he told his version of his own story, and that's what survived. Yeah. You know, it became a movie starring... uh, Tom Hanks, and it influenced the messiah of the future. It's incredible. (laughs) And that's all just because the guy got, like, wrongly imprisoned at an old people's home. Yeah, or it's even all because Tom Hanks' other character threw some guy off a window ledge, off of, like, a ledge of a building. Or even, like, more petty than that, like, because the guy wrote a bad review. Like, because this guy writes a bad review, he creates a messiah in the future, right? Yeah, yeah. I love that about this movie. Like, how it traces back. And I had forgotten that it was that tight. Like, I was saying about the older, the elder uh, Sixsmith showing up and stuff, like which the same actor, by the way, plays young Sixsmith and old Sixsmith, which is kind of crazy. Who has a had a bit? I thought for a long time, I thought it was Doctor Strange because they kind of look like they could be brothers or something. He's played by James Darcy, Darcy. Oh, maybe I do know the name, James Darcy. He does look like he looks a lot like Benedict Cumberbatch. Oh wait, he was in Endgame. Who was he in Endgame? Oh, was he one of Thanos' children? Oh, he's Jarvis. Okay. Yeah. Yes, that's how I... I knew I knew him from something like that. There you go. Cool. But yeah, he does look like Benedict Cumberbatch. Human Jarvis. Yeah. (laughs) This, like, Neo-Soul stuff is just, like, incredible for me. Like, this, for me, I feel... Well, not just because I'm more into the overt sci-fi nature of this and the stuff that takes place in the far, far flung future. But I feel like this is the cyberpunk world that the Wachowskis love the most. And I think they bring a lot of this back to life in Jupiter Ascending. Mm -hmm. But I want this whole movie of just this segment sometimes when I'm sitting down and watching this. I was like, I almost just want an hour and a half of her and her journey uninterrupted. I think I would probably agree. Like, I think of the six, I mean, I do love them all. I think I would want to see this one. And I think the one I would want to see the second most is the one where Frobisher's writing the sextet. Like, I think that that's just, it's beautiful. And it has my favorite, like, his, you know, the speech I was saying before, but also like the shot of them in like the China shop. And then like, just kind of like standing there, like arms in triumph or however you want to say it, like with all the China coming down, like they're just crap, they're destroying. Like, that's my favorite shot in this movie. Like, I feel like that is just so beautiful and this is just so weird and cool and like sci-fi but like i think what makes all these work sort of is that like we don't have a full movie right like we only have 30 or 40 minutes of each one and i think because you're able to reel it in and because it's telling a bigger story you're not like weighed down by like like there's no real time to breathe in this movie which is still amazing considering it's three hours long but like there's no filler because it's telling six stories in three hours Yeah, and essentially it's really just telling the one story, right? So you can't just have, like, just the the Neo-Soul stuff. It wouldn't have the impact. It wouldn't have the meaning that it's supposed to have because it's not viewed in conjunction with the rest of what what's up here and there's sort of like this really beautiful thing about how humanity in a lot of ways ends up where it started you know like the far-flung future is no more sophisticated it's probably less sophisticated than the past in which we start in the 1700s and stuff you know it's almost back to caveman times and things and so they do a good job of showing time diversity i guess you could say like even though the subsequent 
leaps in years are not that drastic. You know, we go from like the 1700s to the 1900s to the early 2000s to we don't really know, but they each do a good job of being like lots of stuff has changed even if we can't get to it all they establish a baseline reality for their timelines or their time zones and they do it really quick and effectively and i think most part because the stuff in the past is it was immaculate period piece stuff so i immediately buy whatever they're gonna shovel me in the future yeah, absolutely. What I also do want to call a special attention to in this one is that Duna Bay is only in three of the six segments, but she plays three characters in this. She plays Sanmi451, who's the lead, but she also plays Sanmi351 and also plays Sanmi Prostitute. And then in San Francisco, she's playing Megan's mom and Mexican woman. So, like, she's got six parts. They just spread over three things, which is bananas to me. And also, like, the profound sadness of this and, like, the fucked upness of this is that kind of the moment where she realizes that something needs to be done, that something needs to change is a kind of a matrix moment which is when i think it's jim sturgis brings her to i think it's jim sturgis i don't know somebody i don't know the guy that she who like her savior essentially right who like enables her to become this messiah brings her behind the scenes and shows that like when they are killed these replicants essentially are then diced up and fed to the other replicants so they're eating themselves and it's like oh shit this is fucked up and like it calls back to the matrix right where neo sees all the batteries and it's just like oh humans are nothing more than just a source of energy for the machines. But it was also what's really fucked up is that in the Cavendish sequence, when he's trying to escape the first time, he's like just making that joke. He's like, Soylent Green is made out of people. And then like 45 minutes later, we see that they're eating people. It's just like, what? I know. That was amazing. I wondered, I was like, why does he yell that particular line? Oh, it's because, you know, people their age would have seen that it would have been a pipe. No, like that is foreshadowing yeah. in like one of the most awesome ways. It's They took this popular culture touchstone and, you know, applied it to their story. Like that is such a nice, such an amazing touch. That is so chilling, the far future, the, the stuff about the, like the replicants or the sim, the sims or whatever they are and i think there's just if i had one complaint about this movie i really needed more keith david like (laughs) even like i love keith david he is the president in rick and morty he's got like one of the most amazing voiceover voices ever well like ever since he ever since he played the president in saints row like the video games i'm like oh no he's just he's he's, he should be the president in everything because like he plays not just the president but he he plays president keith david in them and i'm just like oh this is this is great oh that's amazing i mean i've loved them since they live and he sort of pops up in a he's he's like this i don't say iconic but like he shows up a lot throughout like 80s and 90s horror and and things like that and he's always a, an amazing presence and i was feeling like he was just a little underused in this movie i, I have a feeling that there's a maybe another like 30 40 minutes of footage that would probably you know fit back in here if push came to shove or whatever I, like it just seems like they had to cut this down like they couldn't release a four-hour movie you know like that would be insane as far as the studio goes but that moment though is always just i can't believe they got that on screen i'm so glad that they got that point across because some people just have to see it to un- to get it yeah. you know yeah and that just that is chilling so in this one i think tom cruise could absolutely play an actor that of course <laughs> but is and i think the answer is probably just yeah sure why not is tom hanks america's dad in this yeah sure why not like he's just you know he's 
He's providing for his family by acting, I guess, right? I would have loved to have seen that credit actually be something like Mortimer Hanks, you know, or like something like some kind of future name with Hanks on it so that he was actually playing like a descendant of Tom Hanks that also became like a world famous actor. Well, it reminds me of the of the joke from the finale of Veep where they talk about, you know, Tom Hanks's memorial, like as he like this, like, you know, career where he plays like Forrest Gump 2 and stuff like that, where like he just continues to act in all these things like. I can see Tom Hanks essentially just somehow still living in 2144 and acting then. Or, no, actually, there, hold on. There was, the, it was filmed in 2062. That's what the title card says. It's ML, M-M-L-X-I-I. So 19, or 2062. So, you know, 50 years from now, he'd probably be about 100. I mean, maybe if we get, like, The Congress, like that movie, The Congress Movie Tech, where, like, instead of, you know, scanning in Robin Wright, we scan in Tom Hanks. Like, maybe we, maybe we have him. Maybe that is actually Tom Hanks. Who knows? I'm sure that we've got that tech. I mean, I think that's like Thanos tech, like fa- like face simulation type. I'm sure we could do that. I've watched enough. I mean, it's it's deepfakes. Like deepfakes exist. Like we're getting there. Yeah, I was gonna say I've watched enough quarter crew to know that like half of the Avengers were never even really there to begin with. <laughs> and then our final segment. This is the Tom Hanks segment. It's the Big Isle, which is Hawaii. 106 winters after the fall. So this is set in 2321, and so he plays Zachary. And this is where, if we had to break it down, like this is the most character development we have for him because he goes from hiding as his friend and his friend's child are murdered by these savages to then standing up for himself and like kind of working together and working with Halle Berry and these like advanced races to save people like just basically become a better person over the course of the story and like it's the most affecting Tom Hanks thing because like this is his story in this movie yeah this is a really interesting segment like that title card when it first came up I remember watching this like I got a chill just because of the way that they phrased it in a weird way I get the same chill at the beginning of Batman v Superman when it's like Metropolis the world was introduced to the Superman it's just like whoa like there's something so sort of like in your face about that so that when the title card comes up and it's like 10 years after the fall it's like oh fuck like what didn't happen like everything went wrong like this is the end of the end and so like I am so invested in all of this stuff immediately I love the sort of Mad Max uh, forest future that we get from it I love the idea that like the remaining smarty pants have to come to Hanks in order to be guided up to the beacon, whatever this thing is. Um, I love when we get to the beacon, how we get all the history we need to know. Like, I mean, we don't even need to see what happened. Like, we could piece it all together so perfectly that it's just heartbreaking. The one thing that I didn't think I was going to like coming back to this is that, like, imaginary friend that Hanks has that taunts him throughout the entire segment. Oh, Hugo Weaving. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's Georgie. That I remember not loving when I first saw this. Like, I just didn't really get it, I guess. And I don't fully get it still, but I'm glad it's here because it's like all of that stuff going on in his head outside. We get to actually see like what's going on in his head represented on screen. I actually think that it's really interesting. And again, it's it's just a it's another filmmaking technique from the history of film that they're applying here this whole concept of like Harvey the rabbit you know it goes down to something like that and i think that you know i'm glad i'm i'm glad it's here uh, rather than not being here at the end of the day I know what I'm about to say is going to sound crazy, but I think why that stands out is that for a movie that is kind of as in your face as this is, like over the top as this is, that embodiment of pure evil, it's way less subtle than anything else in this movie. And I feel like it stands out for that reason. 
Yeah, and it's not a subtle movie. It can't be. Right. It's got too much ground to cover. Exactly. And I think that there's so much going on that you're like, oh, like this is all, like, so much of this is over the top, but, like, that's so over the top that it feels like a slap in the face. But I think that's kind of the point. It's just, like, you know, even though we're, it, it's showing the discrepancy, like, we're, we're so far in the future, but he is, like, his people have gone so far in the past, like, they've lost all technology. And then there's basically, it's the haves and the have-nots, right? And, like, Halle Berry shows up as, like, the prescience or whatever, and they have all this tech that, like, cures, like, a, a literal cure all like that just you can do whatever and like they have all this like magical equipment and even though we are hundreds of years in the future he's so far in the past and like you know all this like emotional growth and emotional development he's had over these characters he's then like thrown way back in time because he doesn't have the faculties for it and i think that like because there's just no civilization really like they're rebuilding and so to see him struggle with just like the concept of evil i think while being so over the top and lacking subtlety i think it works because he is just kind of like a killer be killed kind of world yeah i think what i like about it now is it represents sort of like his reptile brain like he's regressed mentally back to sort of like this base of survivalism and georgie being green kind of looking like a snake face monster man and all that kind of stuff like i do think that that's what they're trying to get at a little bit and that that on top of things we hear about radiation sickness and he might actually be seeing things we're not quite sure and the hostile situation in life that that his tribe is just living in general um, i think it's good because like it's a great shortcut for what we're trying to deal with here you know like later on when he pops back up when they're climbing the mountain or it it sells the conflict because we don't have time without this without him there i think it would be too boring first off it's too internal i think right yeah, and too, exactly, and too confusing. I think for better or worse that this was the way to go, and I, I, I'm glad it's here. You see him, like, haunted by a literal demon. Yes. And, you know, this is a movie, and this is something that I'm sure they had all these conversations. Are we going to show it? Are we not going to show it? Who, many, who can see it? How many people can see Georgie? Do other people see him, hear him, all this stuff? When does he pop up? And, like, that's part of the fun of it being a movie. It's like you can have a character like that in there mm-hmm. where he's, like, Drop Dead Fred. <laughs> he's oh, like, boy. By the way, strongly Team Sanity, I can tell you that much. On the on how this going to make Team Sanity or Team Fred, I am definitely on Team Sanity. That is, uh, oh, boy, what a bonkers, <laughs> bonkers movie to use. Their, use their parlance. Is there anything else about this movie, any of the performances, any of the segments, any of the roles, any of the actors that we want to cover before we nominate this for what I can only say is going to be an incredible amount of awards. Well, I just want to say, I think we did like a pretty good job with this episode. If I do say so myself, I wasn't sure if we were going to get kind of bogged down in details about scenes and plot and things, but I think this overall general discussion was, was a good way to go. I just got to say like Halle Berry is fucking amazing and like she is so good in this and i just think everybody's great in this movie and i no bullshit and you know this can this might not sound sincere but like i am just like i forget it's halle berry from time to time i forget it's tom hanks like i think they're doing such a good job with this material that i'm just like buying it entirely yeah i buy hanks when he is the disgusting dude on the old boat i buy him when he is the uh vinnie jones-esque or should I say, you know, he kind of reminds me he's like a Shaw brother in that sequence, okay. if you yeah, don't yeah, mind yeah. me saying. Like, I totally buy that. I buy everybody in this movie, and I think everyone's doing a great job. Yeah, man, I'm just going to I'm just gonna keep championing this movie till the day I die and trying to push it on everybody because I like it that much. Have you watched, I think we talked about it a while ago, I don't remember if you had seen it or not. Have you seen Sense8 or not yet? No. So I had hoped to have started it by now, but I'm definitely 
planning to get there. I'm actually in season five of Shit's Creek at the moment, so uh, as soon as I finish up with that, I think I'm going to move on. Yeah, so Sensei, for anybody who's listening who does not know, was a Netflix series that the fact that it got a second season is miraculous. Like, it was so incredibly ambitious in every regard. It's about a pocket of eight people who can all kind of, like, swap consciousness, kind of. And so, like, it boils down to, like, they all have different specialties. And when one is in trouble, they're all able to, like, basically hop in their body and help them out. And it's much more complex than that. It's much more beautiful than that. It's, like, it's very empathetic. It's just wonderful. But the fact that they got a second season, like, I watched the first season. I was like, oh, this might be my favorite thing I've ever seen. And there's absolutely no way that we're going to get a second season. Because, like, I can't imagine how much it costs. I can't imagine how very few people are watching this. And I just, like, nothing about it screams like Netflix renewal and then Netflix brought it back for a second season I was like oh my god like I can't believe we get more of this and so then they had a second season and then like by the end of the second season or you know a couple months after it came out Netflix like we're not going to renew it but we're going to give them like a three hour movie to basically wrap up the story because like the story didn't really end at the end of season two but like they could have wrapped it up and it ends in a really great way but like almost literally this is not an exaggeration almost literally every episode something happens filmmaking wise or storytelling wise that I have never seen before again like all boundaries or conventions like i cannot explain how like this thing from five or six years ago is so wildly innovative in a way that like i haven't seen anything do it since like it's again what we were saying before nobody else tries this because they're just afraid to go for it and the three of them it's the two of them two wachowskis and tom tick for doing this stuff and it just it works so beautifully well and god bless them for like just doing what they want to do and like seemingly at times like making movies exclusively for like them and you and me and like that's it (laughs) i love those kinds of filmmakers like you mentioned shane carruth earlier and if only someone really wanted to like champion his vision in this day and age but yeah i'm so glad that we have the wachowskis and that we are alive when they are alive and we get to watch what they are making i mean it's it's amazing i love it all right mike let's talk about the tom hanks awards the Woody's, let's nominate this for all too many things. So of course, best film, Cloud Atlas. Yes, please. Let's see here. Best Hanks role. I don't know that there's any one of these. Like, I don't think that this fits there. I think just by the nature of the movie. Generally, the idea is like one role per movie. You know, like, yes. um, not six. So you'd have to sort of just nominate him for the whole movie. Like Zachary, right? It would be like the far future. But like, again, I, to your point about like wanting to see the new Soul movie, like if you just do Zachary, it doesn't have the resonance. Like it's not, a, it's, it's a good character. It's not a great character if it's just that story. Agreed. And I was calling him, uh, what was I calling him? Not Castaway, but like far future cast away or something i don't know cast far 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 away <laughs> yes i think that was it cast far far away or something yeah there was a castaway joke running through my head or to bring it over to our cruise club podcast for a second cast far and away oh how do you like my hat best ensemble for sure cloud atlas best fight is there a fight tom hanks is in and i guess i mean the throwing a guy off the roof is not exactly a fight i don't know that he has a... he has the one at the end with the cannibals okay he gets the the big scar in his eye sure. and everything that's cool him and Halle Berry sort of team up for that one against the cannibals and Cloud Atlas sure best dancing I don't think he dances best party scene again there's the book release but again it's not especially noteworthy for Hanks other than he murders a guy there but yeah it's not like a party party it's a book release like you know it's not like a, a 
bridal shower or something. I don't know. It didn't seem like a party for some reason. Best Hank's outfit wardrobe. I'm just going to say all six characters in Cloud Atlas. Cover that all in one umbrella. All right. Best death. Now, here's the interesting thing. So he only dies in, I guess, one of them, and it's not really a remarkable death, is it? Yeah, well, I guess, you know, technically, like, all of these characters, except for oldie Hanks in On Another World, is dead. Uh, but you're right. I was kind of wondering when that plane exploded, I was like, is that really enough to... And this sounds terrible, but is that enough to nominate him for best death just because he got blown up in an airplane? <laughs> I'm going to write down on an exploding plane in Cloud Atlas, but we will we'll condense it when we do the things at the end. But Because we have another handful of deaths on there already. But best line and best freak out. I think we need to nominate for sure the thing that I texted you, the thing that I brought up before, which is now that is an ending in Maine and flat beyond belief. I think that's Again, he says it very calmly, but I think that, like, that's definitely a freak out. What about the line from the movie that becomes scripture? <laughs> yes. I will not be subjected to criminal abuse. Okay. So we got a line and we got a freak out. Let me write that down. I like that his, like, smallest role in any of these things gets a nomination, but cool. Best soundtrack theme score, of course, of course, of course. Best Hank's love story. We gotta say Tom Hanks oh, and Halle Berry. Like, this this might be yeah. the love story. I mean, I know that he's got him and Meg Ryan. This is literally a love story that spans hundreds of years. Like, how can you fight that? Yeah, him and Meg Ryan, their love may span several films, but this spans, like, a millennium. Mm-hmm. So you, this is, like, the definition of true love. <laughs> You know, they finally find each other. It's amazing. And then I want to nominate for best Hanks actor, male or female. I want to just say Halle Berry as six parts in Cloud Atlas because she's like incredible. I really like Duna Bay, her whole image, her look as an actress. She's like incredibly intense by the end of her character's lifespan, I guess you could say. But like her interrogation and all of that stuff, like, man, like that is some strong, that is some strong stuff. Yeah. I do not know her from much, uh, so it's great to see her here. You'll see her in, like I said, you'll see her in Sense8, and she's great in that. But yeah, Halle Berry, like, this is probably one of her most underrated performances. I mean, just in general, this movie is probably one of the most underrated movies that I've ever come across. Well, Time Magazine named it the worst film of 2012, which you can fuck right off, Time Magazine. So, The Woody's 10 nominees, Best Film, Best Ensemble, Best Fight, Best Outfit, Wardrobe, Best Death, at least for now, Best Line, Best Freakout, Best Soundtrack, Theme, Score, Best Love Story, and Best Non-Hanks Actor, Female, for Halle Berry. Nice, nice. I'm glad it was just the two of us tonight, because I feel like if we had a third, it would have gone on for like another hour. Or it would have been shorter, and we wouldn't have said everything we wanted to say. My other thing was, it would have been an hour because of more love, if we got someone who loved it, or we would have had to sit here and defend this thing for two hours, and I didn't want to go through any of that tonight. I just wanted it to be sort of a celebration of this movie, because we rarely get to do something like this over here. I know, I know. I also really, like, I mean, we were very harsh on the movie last week. Rightly so, I feel. But it's it's amazing to me, amazing to me, that from one movie to the next, from literally, again, I'm using literally as it's intended, literally my least favorite Tom Hanks movie to my favorite Tom Hanks movie in the span of one week and one movie, to go from Extremely Loud and Incredibly Close to Cloud Atlas. It's like, it's whiplash to a degree that not even Nicolas Cage in like, kids movie, bad lieutenant kids movie is like, it's just insane. (laughs) I mean, it's possibly even one of the worst movies to one of the best movies. Not just, you know, forget about like, Hanks and 
in general, but I'm just saying overall, yeah. like as far as the movies are concerned throughout history, like probably one of the worst movies I've ever seen to one of the best movies I've ever seen. Well, Mike, I can tell you that next week we've got another good one. We've got Captain Phillips next week. I'm the captain now, which I only seen once. I saw that in theaters. I know that the ending is often what people cite as like one of the best moments of acting in the history of filmmaking. So that's a Tom Hanks thing to look forward to for sure. But also next week we have our Tom Cruise award show. The Cruisies will be out next Friday. Last week and this week, no Cruise Club episode. So if you have not voted yet, you still have a few more days to do that at cageclub.me slash bracket. So go there and vote. Cast your ballot for the Cruisies. But next week, we got Captain Phillips and we got the Tom Cruise Award Show, the Cruisies. Well, for all things Hanks for the Memories, you go to cageclub.me, facebook.com slash cageclub, or at cageclubpod on Twitter and Instagram. Email us, hanks at cageclub.me. Like I said, come back next week for Captain Phillips. Check out all 47 or 46 episodes of this podcast, wherever you find podcasts. And just, you know, check out all the other shows. Mike and I have done like six or seven other podcasts. I feel like we don't talk about them as much as we could or should. Cage, Keanu, Charlize, Shia, Hanks, Cruz, Cinemakers, right? All we might be getting back to Keanu at some point this summer and hopefully Cruz. Yeah, we'll see. Oh, also, by the way, if you're listening now and you're like, why are they not talking about it? Greyhound is now out. As we're recording, it's not out yet. But as the episode comes out, it will be out. It's on Apple TV+. Plus. We will cover that later this year tentatively, I think, in October when we're going to get to that in the rotation. So we know it's out. We're not going to watch it yet, but we're going to get to it very soon. So that is in three months. We'll get to Greyhound, the newest Tom Hanks movie. If you did not know, it's out there. It's on Apple TV+. So go check it out. I'm Joey Lewandowski. And I'm Mike Manzi. And we'll see you next time right here on Hanks for the Memories. That's a true, true.